Welcome to the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zach Elwood. This is a podcast about understanding human behavior. You can learn more about it at behavior-podcast.com. I don't make any money on this podcast and spend a good amount of time on it. So if you like it, I very much appreciate a rating on iTunes or shares on social media. Or if you're a poker player, you can check out my Poker Tells books or videos and buy those, and that'll be win-win for everybody. Today, I'll be interviewing professional poker player Dara O'Kearney. We'll be talking about Poker Tells, aka behavioral patterns in poker. I'll ask him questions like, how useful does he find Poker Tells? How has he made use of them? How have his thoughts on Poker Tells changed over his career? We'll also just talk about poker in general, and even if you're not that interested in tells or poker, you may find it interesting to get a glimpse of the poker world and the poker lingo and how serious poker players think about things. Dara has been playing poker professionally for 15 years or so and is well known in the poker world. He's an ambassador for Unibet Poker, Cards Chat, and Share My Pair. He's the author of two books, Poker Satellite Strategy and PKO Poker Strategy and also a forthcoming book on ICM, which stands for Independent Ship Model, which is a mathematical model used to calculate a player's overall equity in tournaments in specific situations. He might be most well-known in the poker world for his podcast, The Chip Race, which he co-hosts with David Lappin. And if you're interested, I've appeared on their podcast a couple times. To the best of my knowledge, The Chip Race is the most popular poker podcast out there. Dara is also known for long-distance running, he was Irish national 24-hour champion, and he won the New York Ultramarathon. You can find Dara on Twitter at Dara O'Kearney, that's D-A-R-A-O-K-E-A-R-N-E-Y. And you can find the Chip Race podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you didn't know, I myself am pretty well known in the poker world for my work on Poker Tells. It's my main claim to fame in general. It's definitely not for this podcast. Not to toot my own horn too much, but many people, both experienced players and amateur players, have called my books and videos the best work out there on the subject. I have three books, Reading Poker Tells, Verbal Poker Tells, and Exploiting Poker Tells. And I have a video series, which is currently at more than 12 hours of content right now. You can learn more about all of that and see reviews and testimonials at readingpokertells.com. I've also been hired by several well-known poker players to analyze behavior for them. I was hired by two World Series of Poker main event final tableists, Max Steinberg and Amir Lahafet. And I look for tells they and their opponents might have when they were playing for millions of dollars at the final table of those events. I've done other video analysis work for some other high stakes players, and I've written pieces for various poker world publications, including the old out of print Bluff Magazine, Upswing Poker, Poker News, and more. Dara and I's conversation covers a lot of ground, and it can be hard to talk about poker tells, or poker in general, as it's such a complex topic. So I thought it'd be helpful to give a quick overview of the relative importance of poker tells. First, it's important to understand that you can be a hugely winning poker player without ever even thinking about poker tells. Poker strategy, whether that's a very strong game theory fundamental strategy, or the more exploitative strategic adjustments, is just so much more important than poker tells. Poker tells have been described as the icing on the cake, and I think that's a good analogy. Most experienced players I've talked to agree with my view that being strong at reading poker tells will typically add somewhere between 1 and 15% to a poker player's win rate. It's possible that that could be significantly higher if someone were, say, playing very weak and tell-filled competition, or if they were very, very good at reading people, but pretty bad at strategy, 
or if they were in a huge tournament spot and a single tell would give them a big payoff. But I think for most serious players who also excel at tells, it's somewhere in that 10 to 15% boost to their win rate over the long term. And it's maybe worth saying that the main reason more amateur and recreational players have found my books and videos helpful is not so much for reading other players, but for eliminating their own more obvious tells and plugging those leaks to ensure they're not being exploited in those ways by better players. Okay, that's probably enough of a general introduction about poker and poker tells. Here's the interview with Dara O'Kearney. Hi, Dara. Welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. Great to talk to you again. Delighted to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining me. So let's start with, you've been in the poker world for a a good chunk of time, and I'm curious if you can describe how your view of poker tells, poker behavior, and how important they are has changed over time. I've been in poker now for 14 years. Um, I came into the game pretty late, it has to be said. I learned the game when I was 42, but I was full-time professional within a year, and I've been professional ever since. When I came in initially, I was an online player, um, so I just played online for the, f- the first bit, but I quickly started dabbling my feet in um, live poker. So I was when I started in live, I was very inexperienced, and I think like most newcomers, I would say that I overestimated the importance mm-hmm. of tells. Particularly when people look from the outside this at poker, there's two things that they completely overestimate. One is tells, and the other one is bluffing. Uh, they think everything is about bluffing. Mm-hmm. And as you get more and more experience, you kind of realize that while both of those things obviously do have their place, they're not as important as people think. Mm-hmm. So I think I instinctively read people reasonably well. Um, because when I started playing live, I certainly picked some stuff up. I also think I did the other side of it as well, hiding hiding my own tells, not giving off that t- sort of information. But I did that by basically, I used to wear sunglasses at the table. Um, I used to always dress the same. I wore a business suit, basically, and I just tried to standardize everything. But one story that jumps to mind about how people probably do overestimate tells is the first, the very first tournament I actually played uh, was in a small local casino here in, in Dublin. And I got heads up um, against a very experienced lady, probably Aaron's top female player at the time. And she actually had a blog. So I got the pleasure of reading her experience uh, or her view of me afterwards. Mm. And <laughs> she described me as a nervous newcomer, which was definitely accurate. And she said she she found it very easy to read easy to read me, which I did not find accurate because in the heads up she got it in with four percent equity, <laughs> having stared at me for a long time. So my I remember reading she's saving face a little bit. Yeah, I remember reading that ch- ch- chokedly thinking, well, if you re- if, if you were able to read me that well, why did you get it in drawing almost almost dead? Yeah, and but there, there was there was there was a lot of bravado back then. I think around where people claimed that they could soul read you just by looking at you and. It's it, it's a good strategy to have because if somebody is nervous and and you tell them that they, you can read them perfectly for sure, then they might give off more information. Yeah, it is, it's intimidating for newer players. Yeah, I mean, I think it I think it happens in a lot of sports where it's just the bravado of of acting like your edge is so much greater than what you see. You know, it's yeah, yeah. Carry on though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, then over time, I just kind of so so, so that was kind of an early uh, indicator to me that you know m- maybe there was a bit of snake oil about people's claims that they could re- they could read people perfectly. Mm-hmm. I read some of the literature that was out there and wasn't particularly impressed by it. And then I read your books and I was extremely impressed by those. That that was probably actually a a, a sort of a tipping point for me because I kind of come around to not quite the online player's perspective of. It's all it's all nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, to well, it, there's something to it, but it's not as it's 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 not a big a deal as most people think. But then I read your books, and they 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 really resonated with me. And 
I did actually start picking up stuff. I would say winding all the way forward now, or at least now when there used to be live poker pre-pandemic, I had kind of reached a stage where I definitely felt there was something to be gained from tells, but you know, it might be just once a day that you pick up mm-hmm. a very strong read on mm-hmm. somebody. Um, Especially if you're playing in tougher tougher games. Yeah, yeah this, and that's the other point I wanted to make. It really depends on who you're playing against. If you're playing uh, you know, a high roller, it's very, very unlikely you're going to pick up anything. Even even the recreations that play that tend to be pretty good at hiding their, uh, hiding their tells. But if you're playing a lower buy-in, you'll see a lot of it. It can, it can be almost overwhelming. So it, it, it really does depend on sort of the level of the players as well. The other aspect for me these days is I coach a lot of online players. And then when they decide to play live, they come to me. And they're usually more focused on trying to hide anything that they, they're afraid they might give off themselves. Um, I can usually reassure them on that stuff because I, I genuinely believe that most players out there just aren't very good at picking up tells. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Yeah, it's not nearly as, as big a problem as, as people might think. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, like I just tell them, you know, j- just try and standardize everything. Uh, always, always move the chips into the pot the same way. Um, if you're going to verbalize, always use the same words. Don't sometimes speak, sometimes not speak, um, mm-hmm. all that stuff. And, and, and you'll be fine. But then on the other side, there are still some reasonably common tells that, that I see others give up. But again, it's really sort of just at the lower buy-in levels um, mm-hmm. that you tend to see this much. Yeah, I think you've given a good rundown of how your views of tells change. Over time, there definitely is that overestimation of their importance, especially for people who don't play poker or people who just start out playing poker. There's that sexy element of like, oh, it's all about bluffing. It's all about reading tells, you know. And then you, like a lot of things, you get into it and you realize what the most important things are. And yeah, like you said, I always tell people, I emphasize in my books, you know, tells are a, a pretty small part of poker. Like a, a, I'd say very small in general, especially if you're playing tough opposition. It's like 90% of the game plus is is strategy and there's just so much to strategy and uh, having that more realistic view of tells that, you know, it's, it's something that might change a decision, you know, a few times in an eight hour session or something, you know, and, and the higher stakes you play, the less that's going to be a factor. And then um, the other thing is that often tells just reinforce what you were already going to do. Like it doesn't, you, you know, if you read someone for uh, having a strong hand and you already were going to respect their bet, you know, that, that happens a lot. So it might, you might see a lot of tells through a session, but you might, it might only change your decision, like, you know, a very small percentage of the time. And that's the, it's the other big factor there. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. And coming back to the idea that people exhibited more um, at, at at lower stakes, w- one exception to that is when the stakes are higher than people are used to, then they they get a lot more nervous. And in my experience, they are more likely to to sort of break down and and, and give off tells. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what a tournament is. Like everybody enters a tournament and they pay a buy-in that they're comfortable with, and they're pay, say it's a one k. They're they're playing for one k in equity. At that point, but if they get to the final table, they're playing essentially a new tournament uh, where their stack is maybe worth a hundred k, and there's half a million up top, and there's a lot of pressure on them, and they start to act in different ways, and and they can give information off. Um, that actually reminds me of the the single biggest equity I ever gained from picking up a tell was that in 2015 I made a final table at the at the World Series of Poker, and I went in. I think I was the second shortest stack at the start. And I had been short stack most of the way, so my my decisions were reasonably standard. I had a spot where I think I, I think I might have been up to third shortest now at this point. Um, I think Jason Kuhn had just been greatly cut down by the eventual winner Pesh, and there was another guy short. 
and there were seven or eight left at this point. I was in the cutoff um, and I looked down at Ace Queen. Jason's just ahead of me and Jason had 12 big blinds, if I remember correctly, and he opened for a min raise. Um, so I was now deciding, do I three bat mm-hmm. or do I shove? And while I was doing that, I was looking down the table and I saw the big blind look at his cards and then literally sit upright like he'd been struck by electricity. He was he, he was visibly very, very excited. So I thought to myself, okay, well, he definitely has a hand. Uh, and what does that mean now? So after some thought, I decided to fold, um, figuring that if he if, if he has a hand and you know I get it in against him and lose when I'm six of eight or whatever I was, that's a, that's an ICM disaster for me. So I folded, he shoved. And to my surprise, Jason, who had opened off 12 big blinds, folded. Mm. And I remember thinking, wow, that's really weird. I'm interested to see what Jason's hand is. It, it, it has to be like a really weak ace or something, which is just going to be always dominated. And I was really surprised to see his hand when I watched it back. He had pocket eights, which mm. is not a hand you would ever raise fold. You would either shove it yourself uh, because it has it loses far too much equity to raise fold, or you wouldn't open it if you decided to be really, really nitty because it doesn't have any blockers. So my only conclusion was that what I saw he saw as well. He saw mm-hmm. the big blind have the same reaction. And he decided, even though I'm supposed to continue with my eights here, my eights are never good. That, that was an example of a very high uh, equity situation where the very fact that I saw that paid off for every every uh, every hour I'd ever spent thinking about tells. Oh, yeah, yeah. And your point about you know tournaments can be very high-stakes situations, which means there are these more of these tells that come up when people are very polarized and they're Emotion. I mean, that that reminds me. I, I, I've never played many tournaments. I've only played literally like a handful because I've mainly played cash games. And for anybody who's listening who doesn't know the difference, you know, tournaments are when you buy in and there's a set ending. And cash games are just like the kind of games you sit in and they don't end. You can buy it. You can cash out at any time. But yeah, it reminds me when I did play one tournament, like a couple hundred dollar tournament, and uh, noticed a similar thing of somebody behind me who'd been acting very loose, you know behaviorally loose, physically loose, sitting right behind me for most hands. And then all of a sudden I see him get very still behind me, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay. And I was going to, I was going to raise in late position, but decided not to similar kind of thing. But yeah, those kinds of tells can be very valuable. And I I should say too, you know, when we're talking about the, the value of, of tells, there's just so much to say here. And I think, you know, one important thing is that even though against good players, against skilled players, those spots of, of being, uh, you know, knowing that, something is very reliable, don't come up that often. It's also true that against very strong, you know, equally matched competition, you can be looking for those spots that just like make your decision go one way or another. And for example, I I interviewed Brian Rast, who's a high stakes cash game player and tournament player. And he talked about those, you know, very borderline spots that often come up where you're kind of on the fence of in a lot of decisions versus very skilled players. And he was talking specifically about a triple draw. Uh, I think it was deuce to seven triple draw, which is where you, uh, it's a very closely matched game because you have, and you don't have hardly any information about the other person except what cards they drew and how they bet. So, and he was describing how in those like very borderline on the fence spots, you know, tells really come into play even against quite good players because they're just looking for tiny little things that, you know, maybe it's like 55% reliable, 60% reliable, 70% reliable. It's not it's not very reliable, but over time, those little decisions, if you're making them more consistently and you're making a lot of them can really add up. And I think that's that's worth saying because, you know, why we're talking about, you know, you can overestimate them, you can underestimate them, but there's definitely, even for uh, 
fairly low reliable ones there can be a, a lot of value there over time yeah that's a very good point the, the, the case I, the story i just told that that's one of the few times in my career where i've been almost certain that a player's behavior meant he was he had a very strong mm-hmm. strong hand most of the time it's just it's exactly like you say you put you, you would put a percentage on it 55 percent 60 percent 65 percent whatever the percentage is and a lot of the time it, it, it doesn't come down to anything specific other than how comfortable they look relaxation is very very hard to fake but you can you can still get a very good sense from looking at somebody how relaxed they are and I, I, and also how focused they are i mean one of the one of the areas where you get the, the the biggest amount of information early on in hands is when somebody who is you know very relaxed and gabby looks at the cards and suddenly becomes very still and very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that's never a hand that they're going to fold. Yeah, and Antonio Esfandiari is one who talks a lot about the vibe or the uh, the aura or something, you know, which I think is, you know, he talks about these indefinable things of, of getting a sense of people's strength or weakness, their, their, their feeling. And I think there's there's something to that in the sense that, you know, I think he's, he's pointing at the fact that even if you, a lot of times for these close decisions, some of it can rely on uh, a gut feeling or or maybe even things that you're not aware of that have to do with the, how much the person's moving, you know, like uh, kind of like micro movements, like are they do, are they just slightly more tense and still than usual in a certain situation? I think he's getting at those things that are kind of hard to notice, you know, like when you're watching a video of the of the footage or something subtle really subtle things yeah yeah i think that's very true like i think i'm reasonably good to read people but i don't think i'm one of the best um and i know a few people who i i, I suspect are one of the best one of them is andy black um the, mm. uh, the irish player who has won more live than either irish player and i think a huge amount of his edge just comes from from reading people and i hung up out with andy in vegas and we were doing a sort of an information exchange where he was telling me the stuff that he was good at and i was giving him rundown on game theory and how younger players were playing. But one thing that I remember about our conversation is when we were speak, we were talking about uh, three betting and I was obviously coming out from a technical perspective, talking about the way three betting ranges are constructed. And Andy said to me, um, like, always look at the guy before and, uh, and just after his three bet. And you'll get a set. The phrase he used was aces feels very different from Kings. Mm. And Kings feels different from Queens, <laughs> so he obviously felt that he had his 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 um, antenna are so finely tuned to this stuff that he can almost put somebody on an, on a specific hand. And I mean, I guess it does kind of make sense. I've never I've never had that sort of sixth sense, um, but it does make sense that if somebody has aces, they're obviously going to be super relaxed. They know that no matter what happens, they have the best hand. If they have Kings and it's a it's a it's a high pressure situation, they're, they're slightly worried that you know we all remember the times we had Kings and we ran into aces. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Queens is more is more vulnerable still. Yeah, and I should say I I definitely don't feel I am the best or anywhere near the best at reading tells. I think uh, some people think, assume that because I've you know written books about it that they think I am, but really my my interest in it is about trying to communicate what is going on here. It doesn't mean that in the moment I'm the best at reading tells. In fact, like I sometimes my mind is just kind of blank and I'm I'm nervous and can't focus on everything around me and there's just too much information. And I think there's plenty of people that. You know, like Phil Ivey's probably much, much better than I am at reading tells in the moment, that, things like that. But I think, uh, yeah, the, my work was about like what what is actually going on here? Like what are the factors we can actually uh, figure out and talk about that are, that are going on regardless of like if Brian Rast is making a kind of a uh, – or anybody's making a kind of quick read that they're not consciously aware of. They, they might not even know what the factors are, but can we put those factors into words, which I think is the uh, the tough part sometimes to and, and to ha- have it – makes sense because it's it's really hard to talk about 
behaviors, especially when so many different situations mean different things. And there's so many factors in any specific poker spot, but uh, thinking about uh, Andy Black and, and people like Phil Helmuth. And I wonder if there's uh there's something too about how some people know how people respond to them. Like when I think about Andy Black or Helm or Helmuth, I think about, they seem to be more on the talkative interactive side, which I think, you know, uh, and, and they come to learn how people react to them. And I think a big part of Helmuth's edge, for example, is he, he has celebrity, which makes people behave a certain way because some people just want to play more pots with you and don't mind losing to you. And then he also gets under people's skin a little bit and kind of can kind of, you know, jibe them uh, and insult them. And he kind of knows how people might react to that in different ways. Like, for example, if, if someone's bluffing him and he starts insulting them and they just remain completely neutral and conciliatory, then that's a sign that they're bluffing and not relaxed. Yeah. And then if they're joking or insulting him back, that's a sign that they're relaxed and, and value betting. Yeah, I think that's that, that's exactly right. And that's something that Andy clearly does. It's part of his game to talk. And and actually, he, he encouraged me to introduce that to my game too. Now, it doesn't come naturally to me at all. I'm one of those people who prefers to just sort of sit there and, and concentrate mm-hmm. on the strategy. And me too, yeah, because I'm, I'm, I'm honestly just not that social and I get a little anxious at the poker table. So that kind of stuff does not come naturally to me, but I definitely see how it can be valuable for many people. Yeah. yeah and actually that's one of the major pieces of advice I give to inexperienced players, inexperienced player life, be, be they just players who are generally inexperienced or players who've only played online when they go out to play, say the world series, I tell them like, don't get sucked into, into talking to, to these people. That's, that, that, that's where a lot mm-hmm. of their edge comes from. They're, mm-hmm. they're not mm-hmm. talking to be friendly. They're talking to try and get information from you. If, if you're at a table with Negreanu and he's being all Gabby, that's because that's very much part of his MO. Um, he, he will be able to pick up when you are relaxed in the middle of a hand compared to when you're not relaxed and you don't want to give off that information at all. So the best thing to do is to just shut it down completely. And I mean, that's difficult to do because we have the sort of social uh, imperative when somebody talks to us to answer back right um but you do have to sort of cut that off at the poker table yeah that is a big factor i think i, I think people even quite skilled players don't really realize how much skilled live telefocused players can get when you interact with someone and it's not just about that moment it's about the discrepancy over time right like how how you're reacting in one spot it may not mean much in that specific moment especially if you're you know you have a big hand or something uh but it the discrepancy and the difference over time um, it can mean a lot, can, can show a lot to people who are good at picking up on that stuff. Yeah. 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 And another thing people like Andy are very good at is just changing the whole metagame um, to suit them. So you will see uh, players like that react very differently to players at the same table. You know, they'll be, they'll be very, very friendly to other players and they'll be um, more hostile <laughs> to other players. And that's because they feel that if they're hostile to somebody, for example, that that person might break down and give away information or might play in in, in a suboptimal way um whereas if they're and the same can happen if they're friendly to someone and he told me that he actually learned this lesson on his first trip to vegas and um he had Stu unger to his immediate right um the legendary Stu unger and Stu was incredibly nice and chatty to him and complimenting him and afterwards andy realized that he had played much more passively against you as a result. He had stopped three betting him as much mm. because he felt like they were friends. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and this is something I've seen Andy do in tournaments as well. If Andy has a very skilled player to his immediate left, he will uh, be extremely charming mm-hmm. with them. And he obviously feels that that's, that that's an area where he can, he can get an edge as well. No, for sure. Yeah. And in, in, even in that, in that gaining rapport, yeah, there, there's definitely some, it adds it adds to basically your radar of that person, you know. Aside from them, you know, maybe maybe not 
playing you as hard it can it can it can add to the things you pick up sort of like in the same way that when you're if helmet is insulting someone there there's some extra radar things that he can pick up there yeah i think when it comes to picking up information like there the, the, there's a sort of a, a when people are very very relaxed that they, they can give away information because they're too relaxed um, and they're and they're not really thinking about that. And when people are very very tense, when you go to the other end of the of the scale, I think the zone in the middle is where you kind of want to be. You don't want to be either too, either too relaxed or too nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And if you can move somebody in in either direction out of that sort of central zone um, to where they're either too nervous because you're maybe you're being hostile to them and now they're thinking about that or too relaxed because you've been very, very friendly and now they they think it's just a friendly game. Um, that that can be very much to your advantage when it comes to reading them. Yeah, and I think that helps explain, you know, kind of in an almost like evolutionary sense how there's some players that have just come to be very annoying. Like that's part of their strategy, you know, in the sense that there's different routes you can take in the poker world. Uh, you know, focusing on strategy, focusing on, you know, being annoying and and reading how people respond to that. And I think it helps explain, like, there's a few, there's different, there's different routes you can go. And and actually, uh, I want to talk about when you were talking about the early hand tells, you know, the th- like the three bet spots and, and those kind of spots pre-flop. You know, when I was playing, I, I don't play much anymore. I haven't played for a while, actually. But when I was playing regularly, back when I was working on Exploiting Poker Tells, which was my last book around 2016, 2017, I came to realize my most frequently used, the most frequently used kinds of tells I was relying on were the early hand tells when somebody was uh, raising preflop, three betting, three betting preflop. I was using the uh, indicators of lack of focus, which would be like somebody, you know, a razor was uh, moving around a little bit more, not as seemingly mentally focused. They would joke around a little bit more. They would say something. Uh, so I would use those in- indicators as spots to re-raise pre-flop or on the flop if they were doing similar things as spots to raise them or maybe call and continue and, and see what happens on the next street. And and I realized that the uh, you know it goes against the the common knowledge I think because I think a lot of people think that it's all about those big bets spots. You know we're looking for like signs of bluffing or weakness when somebody makes a big bet on the river or whatever, which can be true. I think in, in, in lower stakes games, it happens more frequently, but you know, when you're, when you're playing somewhat decent players, those kinds of things don't happen as often for the reasons we said, like people are better, they're more cognizant, they're trying to be, uh, you know, those are the spots they're trying to be more, most balanced in. But um, yeah, th- those early hand tells I think are huge. And it's something I haven't really written about much. Like I'd say if there's one, thing that I haven't really focused as much on. It's it's the importance of those early hand tells. And I was actually talking to Alex Fitzgerald, who goes by the name of uh, Assassinato. He's got a poker coaching uh, business too. And, you know, we were talking about that and how much he sees there. And I was like, yeah, it's like, I haven't really emphasized that. And, and yeah, I'm curious, you know, sort of like you were saying, it's, uh, you were you were saying you see, you see some of those early hand spots too yeah i think i see those much more than anything else to be honest um one of the problems with you know by the time we get to the river uh if it's a big pot then you know everybody's focused (laughs) nobody's relaxed Mm -hmm. at that point um i think one of the difficulties with the whole area of tells is and this is a point you make very well in the book that you have to sort of correlate it to the person rather than just go off a general principle is that nervousness and excitement look very very similar to, to to the outside person and, and actually they are very very similar i mean the way they physiologically um express themselves is, is is pretty much the same to the point that when i was back when i was a competitive runner 
my coach used to say, if you feel nervous before a race, um, trick yourself into thinking it's not nervousness, it's excitement. And this excitement mm. will, will give me more energy because nervousness and excitement do feel the same as well. So, you, you know, you, mm-hmm. you see somebody shaking, that could be, that could be, oh, they're bluffing uh, and they're very, very nervous, or it could be they're sitting there with the, with the absolute best possible hand and they're very excited because right. they're going to, they're about to win a big pot. So you kind of have to rewind back to the start of the hand when they were more, when they were more relaxed. Another point I would say on that is sometimes you do see a marked you see a moment where their behavior just completely changes. And that basically means they've gone from, typically it means they've gone from, you know, being fairly relaxed because their hand wasn't very good to suddenly their hand is mm-hmm. very good. Or else, you know, occasionally they're, they're thinking about a big bluff, but that's yeah, usually... The perfect example of that is, is somebody like uh, casually just chatting about something and then the next card come, comes and their 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 sentence just kind of wanders out and yeah. wanders off and they go quiet. You know, that's like the stereotypical. Uh, yeah, now they've hit their set. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, what was I uh, what was I saying? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um and I think the last ever uh live stream I played on was Univet Open Dublin just before the pandemic. And um th- th- there was an example of that. Um I'm, I'm sure I'm going to butcher the hand now, but my memory of the hand is I opened Ace King and the guy beside me looked very relaxed and he just called. So immediately I'm thinking, okay, well, he doesn't have a super strong hand. Um, he just has a hand which he figures he has to call, you know, something decent like Jack 10 suited or a pocket pair typically. And then I think the big blind called as well. And and the flop came Ace King four. And I was looking at him and I, and I saw that sort of moment where he went from not being too concerned with the hand to suddenly being very, very interested in the hand. Um, and I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. Um, so big blind checks, I bet he calls. He's trying to look very casual, um, but I can see that he's kind of faking it. So now I'm kind of thinking, okay, well, I mean, he could ha- he could just have an ace as well. And, and maybe he's overvaluing an ace. Or he could have ace four suited, for example. And that's a very strong hand, not quite as strong as my hand. So the big blind folds, and then turn is a inconsequential card. And I checked, and he did a couple of things which convinced me he was absolutely at the top of his range. So for, the first thing he did was he looked kind of like he tried to fake, like "Oh, what should I do here?" And then he glanced at my stack, and that's that's a tell I found to be reasonably reliable. When somebody glances at your stack and then bets, it's almost like they're sizing up. Okay, how much should I bet here that he's going to mm-hmm. call? That's kind of the mental process that's going on there. And he he did some verbalization to suggest that he wasn't very happy with his hand, but he was going to bet anyway, which, uh, again, <laughs> having read your excellent book, Reading Verbal Tells, um, I, I, I kind of knew that's definitely a monster too. So I folded pretty quickly, and I just said to him, which set did you have? And uh, <laughs> he seemed quite annoyed. And then the the the, uh, the commentators told me later he had he 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 had pocket fours so he had mm. flopped a bottom set mm-hmm. but that was one of that, that that was a case where you know I like I never ever ever supposed to fold that hand if I'm playing strictly by the theory mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but it was it was a combination of everything sort of spe- breaking his range down to to include a lot mostly pocket pairs because of his early sort of relaxation well I'm only going to be interested in this hand if I hit a set mm-hmm. to Wow! Now I've hit my set, so I'm very, very interested. And then, and then, then all the kind of misdirections he tried. Yeah. Uh, well, I think you've hit something really important there, which I think a lot of in a lot of spots there are multiple indicators of, of something going the same way. You know, and I think even if even when some players, you know, are understandably skeptical of using tells, there's there are just so many spots where there are like two or more indicators pointing the same way, like in the spot you just 
said. And I think, you know, if you watched, even if, even if you watch some really high stakes tournaments, you will see multiple spots where even if you didn't want to rely on one tell there, there's like, if you know about tells, there, there are like multiple things pointing one way. And, you know, like, for example, that thing you mentioned of point uh, of glancing towards someone's stack. I mean, that in one way, that's an interpretation of, you know, they're, they're thinking about how much can I get? And, and, and one reason I think you don't see that uh, from bluffers, you're less likely to see that from bluffers is because glancing at someone's chip stack can be perceived as like an aggressive, insulting thing to do almost. It's, it's kind of an aggressive thing, which is why most bluffers will not, you know, they'll want to avoid those more aggressive things because they don't want to accidentally, you know, trigger someone into being insulted or, or equally aggressive. So there's, there's these ways that things add up in, in various ways. And I think uh, that's what I say to people who are, who are skeptical of these things is like, you can just find so many, easily find so many examples of, of multiple tells pointing the same way. And, and, and it happens so often again, though, I, you know, it, should say that that's not a if you're playing against decent players that's that becomes less likely but it's still uh, I, I can definitely show people high stakes WSOP main event tournaments like final table tournaments where you still see those kinds of things like you know you were talking about the weekend statement as I call them when somebody you know weakens the range a little bit directly or indirectly like you can still find some of those very prominent things which are probably like the most reliable kind of things and I have plenty of examples of that from the final table and then, you know, good players would end up, you know, calling those kind of bets sometimes. And I'm just like, well, if you knew even just a little bit about poker tells, you would know like that would be a pretty, you know, you'd be much better off folding in that spot. And so I think it, uh, it points to the fact that, yeah, we, we've talked about how you can definitely overestimate tells importance, but I think a lot of people just, just straight up underestimate them, especially if they, they come from a more online background they know you know they can obviously win big time without those things which is which is obviously obviously true too yeah absolutely and i'm one other point i'd say is that as you play against um, more and more sophisticated players if you are placing too much emphasis on tells you can open yourself to exploitation as well it's it's Mm -hmm. it's it's always the case that when you diverge sort of from optimal theoretical play um, because of other information that if the other person figures that out they can they can counter exploit you I've done that a few times in my career. Early on in my career, I ran into a, an older Irish live player who used to enjoy telling us all how great he was at reading us all um, at the table. And it was obvious to me he'd read, you know, Kara's book and tells. Um, so, so I read it too. Uh, less interested in trying to pick stuff up, but more interested in what, how he will interpret uh, certain certain behaviors. Mm-hmm. And for for the next couple of years, I could literally get him to think whatever I wanted at the table. You know, I would stare at the flop mm-hmm. when I'd hit it. Um, and he would think, okay, well, Kara says when somebody stares at a flop, they've missed. I would, I would, I would glare at him when I when I was value betting, which he always interpreted as a bluff, um, and mm-hmm. uh, and so on. And, and 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 there is always that danger. And and you know, I, on the other side, I've run into some very very sophisticated players through my career who play a very exploitative style, um, where they're clearly compensating for what they're giving up theoretically by their ability to read people. Um, and there's a couple of players who spring to mind on that. The, the top Belgian player, Davidi Katai, the two things people say about him is he's technically atrocious, or at least he's technically very unorthodox. And the second thing is he reads people amazingly. Now, I got Davidi to, to, to get it in Drawing Dead in, in an EPT um, where he gave me a 10-minute stare down. So mm. it goes back to like, I, re- I don't believe that, that they can actually read you. They have they have sort of a book of of in their head, which they think, okay, well, if he does this, it means this. Mm-hmm. Um, but if somebody knows that and they know what your playbook is, and, and then they can, they can sort of uh, hijack that. Yeah, you point out, 
the you know I talk in the books about I don't I don't recommend using false tells, but as you say, there are definitely spots and and one of the situations that's great for that is if you are pretty sure that your opponent you know is using some of the commonly known tells to make their decisions. And also, I think the other part of that equation is is hopefully they they don't have a high opinion of you and think that you're capable, you know, that they're, they're kind of reading you as like they would just an average person on the street or they don't know much about you in other words. So yeah, I think there's definitely spots, like you've said, like I've done that too, where I I thought somebody was kind of like at this certain, uh, certain level of skill and they didn't know who I was at all. So they were going to interpret my stuff in the usual standard ways. Right. Yeah. So I think there's, there's definitely, uh, those kinds of situations, yeah. Yeah, I think the point you make about them not having a, a high opinion of, you, of of your game is is crucial. Um, like I said, I was able to do a lot of this in the early days uh, playing in Ireland mm. when, I, when I was less known than I am now. There's a difference for me between, say, I'm playing in Ireland and I just kind of assume everybody at the table knows me, although that's not necessarily always the case. And if I go and play somewhere like Australia, where the vast majority of people won't know me, you know, they'll they'll, they'll look at a guy in his mid-50s who looks like a tourist um, and they'll have a very different opinion. And that's actually a very useful uh, image to have because they're much more relaxed around you and they're much more likely to sort of just pigeonhole you based on population tendencies yeah when i played in vegas i haven't played that much in vegas but when i used to go there for a few wsops and play cash games i used to wear a uh, like a business shirt like a polo uh shirt with a business <laughs> logo on it so i looked like i was in town for like a business conference yeah, yeah. <laughs> was, yeah maybe that's maybe that's kind of weird i don't know yeah <laughs> um i was curious do i know many people listen to your chip race podcast and you're you're well known from from other things too but do you feel like do you feel like everybody who listens to your chip race chip race podcast? Do you feel like you're you're pretty recognized? I guess what I'm trying to say does everybody who listens to the to the podcast know who you are in person? Um, almost everybody, I would say. Um, I think I have a reasonably distinctive voice. So often, as soon as I talk, people people mm-hmm. make the connection. But then, you know, I'm I'm, I'm sponsored by Univet now. I do wear a Patrick chip race as well. Um, so. The, the very fact of wearing patches means that even if people uh, don't know who you are, they are sort of tipped off to mm. the fact that, well, you're clearly not just a tourist in town. So uh, maybe a good place to go next is, you know, one of the things I love about poker and uh, why I find it so interesting is that it's such a complex game. It's an endeavor you could spend your whole life on and continually be improving at, you know, whether that's the strategic part of the game, which is just so massively complex or the psychology and tells side of the game. But I think all that means, all that complexity means that there's kind of a Dunning-Kruger effect where the longer you play, the more you're aware of what you don't know about the game and how, and realizing that the game is so much more complex than you thought at first, that awareness can kind of make you question your game more and more over time. And I, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I've had that feeling as I've gotten older, I almost feel like with, with all the complexity, growing complexity that I'm aware of, aware of in these spots that I used to not think about that much. Like I, I, I feel like I've become worse in some regard and in just the sense of I, my skill has gone up, you know, objectively, but I still, I have, I question myself more and I'm curious if you can relate to, the, to that at all. I can totally relate to that. I mean, that, that, that is completely my experience with every passing year. I feel less and less confident <laughs> in every spot that I'm in. And I, I, like, I find it amazing that even now when I'm playing online, you know, there'll be some incredibly standard spot where I've opened off 40 big blinds and the big blind just defend the flop to come down. And I'm looking at the board going like, 
why do I not know what to do here? Uh, this is, this is <laughs> I, ridiculous. I know, yeah, I, I, I can totally relate to that. I mean, I feel like it's like a Hamlet thing. It's like I, I've become like Hamlet of poker where I'm like, every the, the spots that used to seem completely standard to me, and now I'm just like, well, what exactly is going on here, really? And like, if I if I think about the game theory aspect and this is so much more complex than I thought. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and, and the other side of that is like I do a lot of coaching now, and s- students send me hands, and my my uh, my response obviously is is okay. Well, I'll run it, and I'll get back to you. In other words, I'll put it into a solver, and then I'll talk you to the output. Um, but sometimes they get annoyed with that and say, "Well, what's your opinion?" And uh, my my opinion is my opinion is worthless. It's like, why do you want to hear my opinion? It's just mm-hmm. you know, it might be wrong. Uh, it could very well be wrong, and even if it's right, it's probably just right by by chance it's 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 really not anything you should be pl- placing any stock on what what i'm good at is i'm good at like programming the solver and then explaining the output to you explaining what, this is why we check raise this hand or this is why this hand is a check call etc cetera, etc cetera. but but you know don't don't ask me in advance because the game is just so incredibly complex i person most players my generation hate the arrival of the solvers because they feel that um, people can improve very quickly now you're using the solvers, but I but I love it because it it has sort of added this complexity to the game where you can actually break down a spot in, in enormous detail, and you're looking for sort of um, the explanation of why the why the output is the way it is. And I love that sort of puzzle aspect. Well, what why do we never check raise on this board, but we always check raise on that board? And why are we using this particular hand to check raise? That sort of stuff is is fascinating to me. But when it comes to play, yeah, I mean, I'm still looking at boards, going like, yeah, I mean. I think I'm supposed to bet here, but I'm not even sure what size I'm supposed to use. How do I not know this stuff? I've spent literally thousands of hours uh, <laughs> looking at solver output in similar spots, and I'm I'm still completely lost here. Well, and to your point too, it's you know talking about many players, you know, getting better with these more established, you know, game theory opt- optimal uh, solutions. I mean, I think a one part, one reason that maybe shouldn't bug people as much is that there is still is so much room for exploitation, and if you're focused on the optimal, you know, the game theory optimal solutions that those things don't necessarily help you go into a game of like pretty weak players and optimize your winnings, which I think there's still so much room there for, you know, and I think it, it should encourage people who are interested in poker because, you know, if you're playing game theory optimal in a, in a game with a bunch of loose, very bad players, you are not going to be making your ideal uh, win rate because there are so many ways to exploit the the specific ways that people t- uh, play, let alone the the tells aspect of like looking for those spots. There's just so many sources of, of, of exploitation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the thing is like the solvers now can also help you to exploit, um, but very, very people use that. Very few people use that functionality. Mm. They, they just focus on the game theory optimal. But like as an example, um, a couple of years ago, I played a spot against uh, an older French player and I had some very very specific reads on the way that he played um, he didn't fold before the river on this uh, if, if he had anything um, if he was checked to he generally bet and if you if, if you bet yourself he generally uh, called um, there was almost no raising so I, I had a spot where I had the sort of the, the perfect um, check raise bluff hand and I got there on the river which is one of the reasons it it, it, uh, it was perfect check raise hand because it could get there on the river um, so I was fairly sure that check raising him was correct. Um, it shut down the action and I took control of the hand. But I ran the spot afterwards. And from a game theory perspective, yes, my hand was one of the was one of my few check raises. But then when I 
node locked is the technical term is, is node locking is where is where you tell the solver okay my opponent is not playing optimally he's playing this strategy mm. no raising no folding of any hand that has any sort of equity and uh so what do we do against somebody who's playing like that and the results were staggering to me the the solver now literally just check raised everything absolutely hmm. everything and if he checked behind on the turn it checked it generally checked the turn and if he checked behind it always bluffed the river because he's he his strategy is basically telling us on the turn whether he has a hand or not um and if he doesn't have a hand this solver goes ahead and overbets the river um which is exactly what a very good human would do as well um hmm. but you know that's not something i would have been able to work out in game that this is a very obvious exploit to somebody who's playing the way that he is i was more focused on the fact that if if uh, if i get there he'll pay me off and having taken control of the hand he won't raise me so i won't get blown off my equity mm, yeah as you can probably tell i've never used a, a solver but that, that that's interesting that you can plug in what you think of the other player's strategy and and uh, use that in the solver. Yeah, I've, I didn't know that. Yeah, one spot I've, and another spot I've been looking at a lot, a lot recently is um, a, a lot of live players in particular. They, they just don't check raise uh, very very often. You know, they defend mm-hmm. they, they defend their big blind, and if they have something, they check call. I, I was interested to see how, how how the solver would exploit that strategy, and what the solver does is it. It bets a lot more in position because uh, there are certain hands you don't want to bet because if you get check raised, you have to fold them. Um, but if the guy never check raises, then you don't have to worry about that. So you can pretty much just bet any, bet everything. But the second exploit, which is interesting, is the sizing completely changes. Uh, the solver, you know, on a certain board, it might bet one third pot typically, but now it goes all the way up to pot because it's going well. You know, he's not going to fold. When I have a strong hand, I want to get as much money into the pot as possible. Mm-hmm. When you have a very strong hand yourself, a lot of the a lot of the value of that hand comes from when you bet it and get check raised. But if he's never going to check raise you, you have to put the money in yourself. Mm. Yeah. So either yeah, you're either getting value or you're or you're making a good size of bluff. So a fold. Yeah. yeah. And you also yeah, obviously the, the the bigger size you use, the more you get to bluff from a theoretical point of view as well. Yeah, I think uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people who don't play poker that much or don't play poker at all. You know, I, I think it's worth saying that poker is just so complex. I think a lot of people have the sense that it's like, oh, it's about knowing when a, you know, what percentage of the hands your flush will beat or whatever. You know, I don't think many people understand just how complex in a game theory sense is. And for anyone who wants to dig into that, you should look up how complex poker is in comparison to chess and see how complex the, you know, as they call it, the game tree is and how hard it is for AI programs to solve poker. Uh, I'll just leave it there. But I, I do think um, a lot of people just don't realize they, they have kind of a sense that poker is, is similar to blackjack or something. So I just want to give props to poker for being very complex for the uh, the lay audience before we. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I think part of that is poker is sort of has ignoble um gambling game origins so people do kind of think it as gambling and when i when, when i got into poker um and i was coming out of running at the time the biggest problem i had explaining to my running friends was that it was even possible to win at poker mm-hmm. they literally saw it as a pure game of chance mm-hmm. um which which again is, is a fairly popular misconception my wife uh, understands games pretty well and i played chess at a reasonably high level too but you know i completely back up what you say poker is a much more complex game and 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 she gets that too like it it annoys her that sort of chess is seen as this wonderful noble mind sport 
uh, where they're all geniuses just because they're good at chess and poker is sort of this grubby back backroom game where 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 people are hustling each other and the, and there's not much skill to it um whereas from a game theory perspective it's it's completely the opposite a note here it might be worth pointing out that even though poker contains so much complexity one reason it's less respected is just how slowly the decisions are made at least in traditional live games and how much chance does play a role in the short term in other words, no limit hold'em may technically be more complex to solve from a game theory perspective than chess and other complex games. But the number of intellectual decisions you're making over time in a live game is just so slow compared to chess. That becomes much less true online when you're having to make a lot more decisions. It becomes tougher and the long-term effects of your good or bad decisions are reached more quickly. So I just wanted to throw that in as it helps explain some of the perception of poker. Back to the interview. Just to double back on my earlier point about, you know, the solver in this spot where we're not getting check raised, making big bets. That's something that uh, live players have always done. You know, when they're playing against that type of player who doesn't check raise, they'll put in big bets. And then sometimes you see guys coming from the game theory perspective and they go out, they've played for years online and they go out playing live and they come back and they say, oh, they're all terrible. They're making these huge big bets on boards where it makes absolutely no sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is they're doing, you know, they, they are playing optimal for the for, for the players they're playing against. And, that's always something, you know, one of the one of the ways you see that poker is a very complex game is that you can have very, very different styles and they're all winning. Um, people are doing complete stops. So, so you can never say absolutely like, don't do this, don't do that. Uh, right. If, if, if there's a player who's doing it and he's winning, you need to sort of break it down and say, well, why is he winning? I mean, yes, it's bad from a game theory perspective, but still he's winning. Um, and the, the, the way I normally put it is to uh, put it in terms of the um, rock, paper, scissors game. Obviously, the theoretical solution to that is to randomize and, and take one in three uh, for each one randomly so that you can't be exploited. But if somebody is throwing paper most of the time, then you don't want to do that anymore. You want to take scissors. Um, but it's but it's still complex because if you like take scissors 100% of the time, <laughs> he's going to change his behavior pretty quickly. And I, I, it's similar in poker. There is a game theoretical optimal way to play it, but nobody is playing it perfectly. And some people are playing a long way from perfect. And you're much better off figuring out how to exploit. And there, and um, there's multiple, you know, theoretically multiple, well, almost certainly multiple game theory solutions for any spot in poker. Like, wouldn't you say that's true? I mean, we we may not know them all, but theoretically, there's like multiple solutions for many spots where you could take one of several actions as long as you had a consistent total strategy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I think that's yeah. that. That also, you know, is is making your point of like. When people are doing something, when we don't understand it in poker, when we, probably in any uh, situation, there can be reasons there that we don't understand. So it's it can be hard to jump to conclusions and be like, that's clearly wrong. Because even for a player you think is completely horrible, like maybe it'll come out that that's actually, you know, a very... Uh, you know, legitimate solution that they've taken for that specific spot. You know, there's a reason why maybe they're doing that or maybe even doing it accidentally, but it's not as horrible as you think it is, you know? So I I think that's, it's almost like a philosophical thing really of like reserve judgment because you never really know (laughs) what the factors are. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. The thing is with with solvers now, we can sort of break down and see why certain things are working, but you know, the the solvers have educated us on a lot of things too. Like if you go back 10 years ago and you ask people, what you should you should do from the small blind if it's folded around to you. Uh, the vast majority of good players would have said either raise or fold, never limp. Now, the solvers have proven to us that the correct strategy um, at shallower stack depths 
at least is it involves a lot of, of limping mm-hmm. um there, there are other spots where uh you know the, the game theory solution is quite different from what human intuition thinks it is um a lot of human intuition uh, around poker is based around sort of um, wish fulfillment more than anything else. When you're in the small blind, for example, you don't like to have to play the, ha- the entire hand out of position. So that kind of pushes you to either fold and the hand is over or raise and hope the guy folds and you won't have to play the hand out of position. It's our discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of what drives that strategy. Um, similarly, like th- there's a lot of spots where humans will say, oh, just move all in after the flop because you ha- you have enough equity, and that's just because they're in a difficult spot and they know that they can't fold, so they just they just move all in. But you know, again, if you, if if you break down the spot, often that's not the optimal uh, strategy because you know if you have a very very strong hand, you don't want to just move all in and get get the guy to fold. So therefore, when you have a strong hand, you should be batting smaller amounts, and therefore, uh, but you can't switch to a strategy unless you're playing against somebody who's completely unsophisticated of just betting a small amount with your strong hands and, and, and moving all in with your less strong hands. But um, yeah, a, a, a lot of um, sort of hu- the human approach to poker is more of a desire to avoid unclear spots rather than what's the actual best play here. And uh, if all this sounds too intimidating for people that are thinking about playing poker, I should also say a lot of that stuff you won't have to deal with for a while. Like if you get into poker, and you play live, for example, at low stakes, there's simply a lot of just simply bad players. So I don't want to make poker sound like you have to be thinking about all of these super complex things. They're, you know, a large bulk of taking money out of the game in poker is 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 it coming from pretty weak players. And there are a lot of weak players. So I just wanted to give that a yeah. uh, po- promotional um, <laughs> yeah. poker. Yeah, promotion. no, it is a good point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we could, it's possible to make it sound too scary and intimidating, but um, the you know, then that's one thing I love about poker. It is so it is so complex. It, it's a it's a lifetime endeavor of, of learning, theoretically, if you're interested in it. And uh, but you can get started right away too. Uh, so uh, I was curious if you see any crossover from marathon running to poker. I, I'd imagine that uh, that kind of training would uh, would help in in long tournaments, helping you keep your cool and keep your focus. Yeah, there's obviously some physical benefits to being fit. Um, uh, like I always feel that my biggest edge in live tournaments comes towards the end of the day when people are getting tired, and I'm mm. I'm getting tired too, but to a way lesser degree. But I would say probably the the biggest one is just uh, the ability to just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Training for a marathon and and even running a marathon to a, to a large degree is is pretty dull. Like you're never going flat out on your feet for a long time you're doing the same thing over and over again and you kind of have to be able to just accept that and not mix things up just for the sake of mixing mixing it up mm-hmm. it's the same in the same in poker like one area i see this really come out is when very very good online players go out and play live for the first time and it's such a different game live because when they're playing online you know maybe they're playing 20 tables and each table is playing 60 hands an hour so they're they're playing 1200 hands an hour uh, so that so so they never get bored. Then they go out and play live, where you play twenty five hands an hour if you're lucky. And now they're just bored out of their minds. They're like, because you and you know you you you're mostly folding. So you know you're playing twenty five hands. If you're lucky, you're only folding twenty of those before the flop. You know they'll they'll, they'll come and they say, okay, well I had this hand and I raised, and I'll go like, why did you raise that hand? Would you ever do that online? 
Mm. And they go, no, I didn't. No, no, I wouldn't. But uh, they'll say, oh, well, I hadn't played a hand in a while, and I thought they they thought they thought I was tired. They they'll come up with all sorts of justifications. Mm-hmm. Uh, these players were weak. For, I had to get in there. These players were weak. Yeah, that's the other great one. Yeah. Oh, I can I can get I can definitely get away with opening a seven. You should see. You here should because, see how they were playing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whereas the reality is like the way you exploit really weak players for the most part is just by waiting for very clear spots, waiting for very strong hands and value betting, but. Yeah, people get bored and and they do all sorts of uh, weird stuff just because they want to uh, to get fancy and get away from that boredom. So I think I don't think it's just marathon running. I have noticed there are other sports too where people come across and they tend to be very good. One of the interesting ones is snooker. I, I don't think hmm. I've ever met a, a snooker player who was who was terrible at poker. Interesting. Um, um, and you would think, well, there's no correlation there, but there is because there's a you know snooker players at the top level they have to practice for hours and hours, mm. and they're just literally doing the same thing over and over again, um, w- w- without diverging. And they're tr- and they're trying and and the whole purpose is trying is literally to just try and do the same thing over and over again. So I think any endeavor which gives you that sort of preparation for doing the same thing over and over again without getting bored and that boredom. Uh, causing you to do stuff that you would normally do um, is good preparation. Um, speaking of sports and poker, I I was invited on this uh, sort of like promotional documentary. It was called David versus Goliath, and it was a uh, thing with David Hay, the the boxer. And uh, oh, so yeah, you know, my friend Katie was involved in this. So, so basically, the I, I went to Vegas and had a meeting with him because he was a uh, he was a, a boxer who uh, was trying to get into into poker and it was just a promotional thing like he had never really played poker but the casino uh, i can't remember it was the casino the big casino and uh grovener yeah grovener yeah anyway i i just have to say uh, it's a great unintentional comedy if anybody in the poker world wants to watch it <laughs> um it's basically about how he they, they expected him to actually like take it seriously and, and uh try to learn poker but he has zero interest in it so he, he doesn't improve whatsoever <laughs> and just like immediately loses all his chips whenever he plays and then they at the end they buy him into the uh to the big tournament like literally like 16 times and then act impressed when he like you know advanced pretty far and i mean i gotta say if you're in the poker if you're in the poker world you will find it very unintentionally hilarious because the guy just does not care about playing poker whatsoever <laughs> so yeah yeah i uh, yeah, I I am um, I'm friends with a few of the Grosvenor pros, and, and I did I did I did I did get a sense of that from them. Not not quite as brutally honest as the one you just gave. Well, yeah, I, th- but, I think people people are afraid to to throw it under their bus, but because they're like involved in it. But I was like I was involved in it. It was pretty funny. I, I I don't mind knocking it. I mean, it's like obvious like how he feels about the game. So it's like it's just the truth. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. anything else you want to say about tells that we haven't touched on any other um, crazy anecdotes spring to mind um, one anecdote from er- again from early in my career this is before I was known so this is why most of these things are were, were, were possible at the time but just to get out of the house when I was purely an online player I used to go and play in my local pub um, they, had a, they, they, had, they had a game every Thursday or whatever it was. And, you know, there was only 20, 25 people, whatever. And um, it was very relaxed. And it was one of these nonsense structures where everybody starts with a ridiculous amount of chips. Um, but, you know, 10-minute blinds. And before long, everybody has six big blinds. And, and that's the way the game plays out. But um, there was one lady there who... She did pretty well in the game, I have to say. She she obviously had no idea who I was because I was just an online player at the time. So she was just looking at this sort of middle-aged guy who didn't seem to know what he was doing and that was very much her impression of me so she used to constantly like give me lectures on oh you're far too tight uh, you need to do, you need to bluff more you need to to do this and do that um but 
she had the most pronounced tell I've ever seen. Uh, it was it was incredible. It it was a hand tell. Um, every time she 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 bet, she would move chips into the pot. And if she was value betting, that was it. She would just place the chips and there was nothing more. But if she was bluffing, after she'd placed the chips, she would literally wave her hands over the chips. In my, I, I classify that mentally as she's, she's waving those chips goodbye. <laughs> she, she knows if she's called, they're gone. Um, so I would literally just stare at her hands for the whole uh, game. And I, I would know with 100% accuracy whether she was bluffing or not. Um, and it was interesting how she internalized that because she did realize after a certain point that you know he he always seems to know whether I'm bluffing or not, but she couldn't get over the over her initial read that I was this uh, inexperienced player who hadn't a clue what I was doing. So she, mm. she 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 said, "You're incredibly lucky. You, you seem to always guess right uh, whether I'm bluffing or not." You know that, that 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 kind of goes back to it's a lot easier to pick that stuff up if if they have a very low opinion of you. Um, mm-hmm. And I certainly found as I became known as a as a one of the more successful players in Ireland, it was a lot more difficult to exploit that stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, you know, there are definitely definitely positives and negatives to being perceived as either a strong player or a weak casual player. Like each one comes with its own set of things you can do and, and can't do as well. And I think there, yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely no right answer because I think some people would prefer the uh, strategic adjustments that come with people perceiving you as a strong player. Like there are definitely strengths there but i personally i prefer people perceiving me as as weak i feel like i know how to use that in in more ways but yeah yeah i think i'm the same i mean we we, we mentioned phil helmet and andy black earlier and i think they both benefit from people perceiving them as very strong players mm-hmm. while conversely wanting to play against them um which which which, which is a weird it's phenomenon a good combo. yeah it's a really good combo <laughs> where the worst players at the table want to play against you because they want to go home and tell their friends that they they, they beat andy or phil in a hand um, and some people will just give you their chips because they're like, I got, I, I, I got to play with Phil Helmuth. Yeah. yeah, I played this huge hand <laughs> against Phil, and I, I, I tried to bluff him, and uh, <laughs> I, I spoke to him at the end, and I told him he should fold. <laughs> he still didn't fold. Uh, as yeah, pe- like people want a good story, um, which is which is fine too. Like um, you know, not everybody's motivation in poker is to make as much money as possible from poker. Um, mm-hmm. You have to mm-hmm. respect other people's motivations. Totally. Uh, yeah. There, there, they're there not. A, they're not chumps. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there was a lady I played with a lot in the, in the early casinos. Um, one wonderful old older lady, Vera Duffy, and she was referred to as the bubble girl because she used to bubble tournaments a lot. Um, and I remember one of the younger players saying to me, like, she's obviously a very smart lady. Why, why doesn't she just adjust her strategy? Um, I said, I think her strategy is perfect for what she wants. She, the money doesn't mean anything to her. Uh, she's she's independently wealthy. Any amount of money she wins in here isn't going to make any difference to her life. Um, and she, she was she was incredibly generous when she played cash. She often, when she was playing cash, she'd play the very last hand. Um, and if she won it, she'd give her entire stack as a tip to the dealer. Mm. Um, so so the money clearly meant nothing to her, but she loved the sort of social aspect of the game and just being around. So she was optimizing for time in the tournament. Um, that was her perspective. She didn't want to bust early and have to go home. Even you know, when, as the bubble was looming, she didn't want to bust before the bubble. Uh, so if she if she, if she got to the bubble and bust, that was better for her than you know busting earlier. Whereas for somebody like me, it would be the same outcome. In fact, I'd prefer to bust earlier because I get I get to go home earlier. But you mm-hmm. kind of have to understand pe- different people have different motivations, and they will generally optimize for for what they're trying to get. And if, you know, if you're a, a, a bad, a strategically bad player and you find yourself playing against Phil Helmuth, well, then maybe the best option for you is to go out in the blaze of glory against Phil. And then you have a story that you can tell all your friends back home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
just uh, I'd say spread it around to other people too. You know, Phil, Phil's getting enough loose action. <laughs> yeah, That's all. Yeah. If, I, if you're listening to this, just give it, give it to Dara, give it to somebody else. Yeah, it's, it is infuriating. <laughs> Phil doesn't need it yeah, at this yeah. point. Stop handing him the chips. Um, yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Dara. This has been a great talk and uh, appreciate your time. Thanks, thanks, Zach. It's been, uh, I really enjoyed it as well. That was Dara O'Kearney. You can follow him on Twitter at Dara O'Kearney. That's D-A-R-A, his first name. And if you're interested in poker, you can listen to his poker podcast, The Chip Race. If you like this interview, you might like checking out an interview I did with high stakes player Brian Rast. That's on my Reading Poker Tells YouTube channel. Also, if you're interested in poker tells, check out my readingpokertells.com site. If you're kind of interested in poker, but more interested in general psychology, I'd recommend my Verbal Poker Tells book. I've had people tell me that it improved their listening and interpretation skills, even outside of poker. You can learn more about this podcast at behavior-podcast.com. If you like this podcast, I appreciate shares on social media and a rating on iTunes is also hugely appreciated. Thanks for listening. Music by Small Skies.